interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is John Austinson, CEO of Frambridge Capital. Welcome and thank you for sharing your insights into the private equity industry, John. Alex, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. John, for those of us who do not know you, uh, can you give me kind of a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please? Yeah, absolutely. So John Austinson based here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I certainly have a little bit more of an unorthodox background than probably a lot of your guests, but spent the majority of my career in the corporate world with uh, Accenture and then with uh, Carter's Inc. Uh, based here in Atlanta, had a great experience, worked in investor relations for a number of years, but had that desire to work with a private equity-backed company versus a um, public company. And so Stepped in with uh, Shelf Genie, uh, which is actually was recently sold to uh, to Neighborly uh, just a couple months ago. Uh, but Shelf Genie was an Inc. 500 company, national franchise system, you know, focused in custom pull-out shelving and in pantries um, for your kitchen. And had the opportunity to serve as president uh, for a period of time. Long story short, ended up partnering with the founder, Alan Young. Uh, we brought in another partner, and now we are multi-brand franchisees ourselves, and we've raised capital around that and uh, spend the majority of my time on the consulting side, helping other clients do the same. Perfect, perfect. So what was it that attracted you to the private equity industry that made you think, okay, that's the space I want to be in? Well, first off, I like the idea of not having to do quarterly earnings calls and, <laughs> you know, and gear our thinking around uh, three-month increments to the same degree as you do in public company world. And uh, we had some interesting experiences there in which we went through you know, some Sarbanes-Oxley issues, had the DOJ, SEC, all sorts of uh, friends of ours get involved. So, you know, great experience, but uh, one of those I wouldn't want to go through again. And, uh, you know, with private equity, I love the focus on growth. I love the people that are involved in the industry. You know, just really be able to build something that uh, can ultimately change lives in a lot of cases, both for the internal team as well as those that you're serving. Absolutely great. So our private equity industry is a, a fantastic industry. Gets a bad rap, but uh, every industry has its bad. But uh, for uh, for every bad, it's got a uh, hundred good. Um, I completely believe that. What um, what one mistake do you see either private equity firms or their portfolio companies making, and what actions would you take to to correct them? Yeah, I think being too limited in their mandates. You know, I think there's a lot more opportunity to. to you know, go after, you know, opportunities out there, you know, where the action is, you know, be able to look down the pipeline, understand how you can differentiate from others. I have conversations, uh, you know, several times a week with firms that you know, are just too limited by uh, what they can ultimately go after. And so I think their investors would like for them to be more opportunistic. Obviously, you've got to set that uh, criteria up front, but I I see more and more opportunity to think from an unorthodox standpoint and go after opportunities that may either be too small or in an industry that wasn't the target. Interesting. And, and when you say kind of more opportunistic, how would you kind of describe that opportunistic nature um, in comparison? Yeah, if I'm listening to this, I'm kind of like, well, okay, what does, what does more opportunistic mean? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, I get calls, you know, I was on a call yesterday, uh, firm, they, they've had a $350 million raise and they're looking to invest at the franchisor level, but the franchisor must be doing EBITDA of, you know, seven or 8 million for them to, to be considered. Well, my experience is I work with a lot of emerging franchise brands that have great leadership teams that have been successful previously, 
And I've seen what can happen in 12 months. And so in some cases, they might be doing half a million today, but they're doing seven or 8 million next year. And so you're able to get in early, oftentimes at a better valuation. Uh, you know, I think of one in particular, uh, Koala Insulation is the name, had it by a great guy, Scott Marr, who had built up the Fleet Clean franchise system and had a nice exit a couple of years ago, took all that know-how to the $52 billion non-sexy insulation industry. And um, when I got to know them a year and a half ago, they had five locations. They've now got 160 uh, in the process of opening. So um, there's great growth potential when you've got the right leadership. And I think size uh, comes into play too often. I'm a big believer in the right leadership and the right people for obvious reasons, but also I do genuinely believe it aside from, uh, from doing executive search. So most people, if not all, everybody listening will be familiar with the typical private equity investment strategy of either majority or minority stakes in, in privately owned companies, but not as common as is investing in the private equity model in franchise but also then within franchise locations rather than the whole company. So tell me, John, what, what, uh, what brought that to your forefront and what made you, uh, you know, divert into that space? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you've seen it with the orange theories of the world and others in the past where from time to time, private equity firms will come in and swoop up a large number of franchise locations. And yeah, and I'd say that is becoming more common uh, based on what I'm seeing out there today. However, you know, the, the prototypical approach would be to invest at the franchisor level. And, uh, you know, oftentimes those franchises change hands multiple times, you know, it's for a period of time. I, you know, I think of Eagle Merchant Partners here in Atlanta, they just came in uh, to Code Ninjas recently, which is a STEM, you know, education related uh, franchise system. You know, they'd help build up chicken salad chick uh, prior to that. You know, Rourke Capital, another great Atlanta-based firm, uh, you know, is heavy into franchising. So, I do see more and more recognizing franchising as a great way to augment their portfolio or, you know, become a main focus and vertical that they go after. But it's typical at the franchisor level for that entire franchise system. However, more and more of the conversations I'm having, um, I'm encouraging them to consider the franchisee level. Obviously, it's not as clean necessarily, but there are ways to go about it and great returns to be had. What's the, because I can understand, um, you know, somebody thinking, you know, looking at the franchisee level and thinking, okay, we lose a little bit of control here. The brand is not our own. We can't change and shape that, which I know private equity like a lot of control over things. And, and, uh, and therefore, I can't, not that too many P firms are going and, and do massive transitions of brands. So I can imagine it's probably something in the back of their head, but probably not something they would uh, they would execute on. What would you say to somebody that thinks, okay, we have a little lack of control here. It's a franchise business. I'd rather just buy something that we completely own and therefore we can, we can shape. You know, it's interesting, the question, because what I'm seeing is franchising is extremely attractive to private equity for some of the reasons you just mentioned in that it is a proven system. It's very scalable. You're using other people's money. You're not just creating a sales team around the country, you know, with individuals in other local markets, but you're creating true stakeholders that have put their own skin in the game that are going to outperform just a sales team, you know, and you've got that local market knowledge, being able to scale up really fast using other people's money, adding leverage to the equation, getting aggressive on the marketing side, 
you know, and many of these businesses are just beautiful cash flowing businesses. You know, when you consider sectors like the $500 billion property services sector, which is as hot as any right now, or, uh, you know, recurring revenue type businesses like fitness in the past, obviously COVID, you know, hit, hit it a little in some markets uh, this past year, but we're seeing a strong rebound there. And just a lot of dynamic health and wellness related or, or those related to the senior industry, a lot of industries that have great tailwinds you know, at this period of time and kind of looking down the down the line. I'd say that the multiples we're seeing and the bias towards franchising and what it provides, it's resonating. It's resonating with private equity. It's resonating with individual investors and operators as well. Interesting. And my perception of um, franchises mainly sits around what I'd regard as retail or food, food in the main part, but food retail. Is that a huge part of the market or is that actually when someone's in it, you're right, actually that's the small part and the big part is X. Yeah. No, great question. So there are close to 4,000 franchise brands in the US today, and you have new ones coming on the scene every day. I work with about 300 franchise brands on the consulting side, helping them play matchmaker, find the great candidates around the country to, to, to buy into their system. And uh, these are brands that we vetted, feel very strongly about. I'd say close to half of the 4,000 brands at the broader level are, are food related. I spend most of my time on non-food related. So think about the serve pros of the world or the roll-off dumpsters or those non-sexy niches, you know, in health and wellness, automotive. That's where people want to be. 95% of my clients have no interest in food. 5% are diehard food. 95% have no interest. And so, you know, and I'd say there's also a bias right now towards, uh, towards businesses that don't have a retail footprint. Obviously, there are deals to be had out there in the retail space, and they're great concepts. And the first couple of deals I did this year, ironically, were, were in brick and mortar. But I'd say most of the interest from investors right now is in the non-food space. Okay, interesting. What, what have you found have been the kind of common challenges that you've faced when investing at franchisee level rather than a P firm coming in and investing at you know what would you regard as a normal level or as you would refer to as a franchise or level? Yeah, you know, it's just operators. I mean, you've got to have economies of scale by, you know, building up a large enough mass of markets and number of owners and recognizing not every owner is going to perform the same, not every market is going to be the same. So, um, you know, I think in the same way you create a diverse portfolio of businesses or industries, you know, you also want a diverse group of operators. Where I see massive opportunity today is the levels of cash on the sidelines. And at the same time, the operators around the country for great brands or, or would-be operators that don't have access to great funding or, or they don't like the SBA route, which is very traditional, or their 401k rollovers, there's an equity funding potential to marry these two together that I'm starting to beta test. I've done a few deals recently. I've, got a, I've done a few deals for my partners as well. And it's something that I'm going to go deeper in because there's interest there on the sidelines to be more passive and yet put capital at work and diversify your portfolio through franchising. At the same time, there are operators out there that would love that coaching call every month and having an equity partner in their court on the sidelines. Okay. And the typical model of, of a private equity firm will be, or traditional you know, private equity firms will go out and raise capital from LPs. How have you found you know, your concept being different from traditional? How have you found that's been received from, from an LP perspective? Yeah, no, we we recently brought on uh, one of our LPs as a um, one of the larger accounting firms in the U.S. Uh, their CEO uh, stepped in, took a little courting on my part, but I was I was excited to get him on board. And 
we've just got a great group personally of LPs behind our businesses. And, uh, you know, it does take a little more explanation, but once you draw out that cash flowing pro forma and chart, you know, it's very enticing. So it's easy to get people excited, you know, but we definitely point to the risk and what those uh, would be. We get probably more questions than usual, just because um, like in the property services space where we focus a lot of our investing, people aren't as familiar with it. They don't understand the value sometimes that franchising brings to a blue collar industry, let's say. And so there's a lot of education at a more general level outside of just the specific investment itself. Interesting. And, you know, your your model, your concept stands out certainly from, you know, traditional private equity firm that might be really, really generalist um, and, uh, and quite wide. What advice would you give to other kind of private equity partners, managing partners, based on on the experience that you've had being in a particular niche and, and growing a private equity firm and that's in a, it, with a particular niche? Yeah, I think it's being open-minded and understanding where the action is and then trying to figure out how to differentiate yourself. So again, I'd say 90% of the private equity calls I'm getting right now, you know, on my consulting side of the business uh, where they're trying to find great franchisors or, you know, multi-brand franchisees out there, they're all looking at the same thing. They all want, you know, certain requirements around property services. They only know enough to be dangerous. So I think it's really educating yourself on the market. And like I said, taking a long-term view. I mean, that would be my biggest perspective there because, you know, you can scale a franchise system very fast and you can create a beautiful cash flowing model uh, with great exit potential and great multiples. There's a lot of interest. I mean, I shared with you before the show, we're projecting franchise sales this year to be up 40% over pre-pandemic levels. There is an unprecedented level of interest in franchising. You know, franchising was hot, frankly, before COVID, but COVID's caused a lot of people to step back, consider the path they're on, maybe scratch the entrepreneurial itch. And so we're seeing incredible amounts of demand on the franchise candidate side. And in turn, we're seeing great brands, you know, shoot up as well with a good backstory. So that's interesting. So you talk about the, the people that are building these or taking the step into being a franchisee. What are your perceptions of the people that are doing the franchisee work and taking on these opportunities? What is it that makes them kind of a top performer and, and makes them do this? Yeah, you know, I, I think a combination of being hungry and, you know, just like any business, you know, putting in the hard work, recognizing you're not going to be entirely spoon fed. There's still work that goes into it, even though you buy into a franchise system. So having that hunger. Secondly, it would be um, humility in recognizing I'm a member of the entrepreneurs organization. My partner is a YPO member. A lot of those are not great candidates for franchising because they don't like to stay within the lines. They want to have their thumbprints all over the business. Now, I'll say some of them are great candidates because they really don't want to reinvent the wheel. They love the idea of, you know, this time around stepping into something. But I think having that humility to recognize that the system is proven, there's a reason why you're buying into the franchise system, learning from other franchise owners and other markets, learning from the franchisor. Uh, so so I, I'd say hungry, humble, and then finally, being able to work with people. You know, a lot of things are done for you uh, with the franchise system. When your calls may be answered, your marketing is kind of set in motion, the training of your team is done. What, what it comes down to is, and I used to tell this when I was on the franchisor side at Shelf Genie, I would tell candidates, your ability to work with people, meaning attract and hire great talent, retain and incentivize that talent, and then make tough calls when needed. Uh, we're, that's really what differentiated the best franchise owners from the, the mid-tier. Interesting. Very similar to what we'd hear from a, uh, what makes a great private equity chief exec, CFO, but uh, maybe a little bit more on the entrepreneurial side and wanting to do it themselves. That's really interesting. 
where do you get your kind of influences? What do you read, watch, listen? Where does your uh, you know self development side come from? Yeah, no, great question. I, you know, I, I love content, and uh, you know, whether I'm exercising, I mean, I'm always absorbing content. If I'm on the Peloton, I'm I'm listening to a podcast, oftentimes your podcast, uh, rather than just uh, watching the video, the music video there, and so. Seth Godin, Jim Collins, I've uh, really been going deep. I mean, those are old guys that have been doing it a while, but just great stuff. Tom Petty uh, as well. So, no, love content, love also keep an eye on what's new out there. But again, just don't mean for it to be a plug, but entrepreneurs organization, we have great speakers come in. We have great thought leaders. I'm in a forum with other business owners and we're all growing our businesses. We all grew them during COVID significantly. And uh, it's just an encouragement and inspiration to see how they're doing it and apply it to my business. And um, I think that's a really important way of of networking. And it's something that we're thinking about is how do we leverage the contacts and connections that we have because we've got so many people that are running firms or running uh, private equity backed businesses. And it can be, it is lonely and it's difficult. You know, you go home and you talk to your partner and, and they're not, you know, maybe not as au fait unless, you know, your wife or your husband's running a uh, private equity backed business or works in the space. It can sometimes not be the same. And maybe they're not the best person, certainly from my perspective, to speak to regardless. But having a really strong network and having people that are going through the same the same journey and having the same problems and equally some people that have already solved those issues and they're on to the next thing and uh, they can just steer you in that right direction and just give you that support network i, I agree it's um, an essential part something i definitely have for myself within the network of uh, executive search improvement business owners and uh yeah i encourage anybody that's uh, listening to to get a network and get involved in something like that they can be difficult to find uh, those types of groups with the right type of people but once you're in it's um it's a real benefit yeah no i think you know eo ypo i i think a lot of angel groups are good as well you know vistage does a nice job too but uh you know one thing that i was going to mention is the the angel side of investing i mean we're we're taking in a lot of investments from 50 you know 50,000 75,000 100,000 dollar placements from individuals and okay. there's a untapped opportunity right there as well uh, kind of that uh, crowdsourcing in a way uh, but there's a lot of cash on the sidelines it's nervous about the rising stock market levels may not have access to private equity in, in a large scale but there's a lot of money to be had right there and, and that's where we're seeing a lot of people come to us that's interesting. I know there's obviously a restriction regarding some firms being able to make those type of uh, approaches, and it's a difficult one. I know plenty of private equity firms that can't tell me certain things. Well, they can, but they tell me they can't. So, but uh, yeah, that's really, uh, really interesting. John, I'm interested. Have you ever been blindsided? And if so, what did you what did you learn from it? Of course, I've been blindsided many times in my life, but uh, I think I think back to to losing key personnel and, and not seeing the hints along the way that they may be uh, about to take off or you know, take an offer somewhere else. And, um, you know, at times there's only so much you can do, but there are times that I certainly could have you know, intervened in a bigger way or, you know, frankly, just showed I cared more. You know, I think oftentimes that, that was the case. You know, I think I have a key person back when I was in the corporate world that, you know, we had a $150 million account with Costco every year that I was responsible for. She was on my team and I let her take the reins a little too much. And then when she um, she left, I was left, uh, struggling there for a few months. So um, it's recognizing who are those key personnel, making sure that um, they're they're cared for, but also making sure that you've got the pieces in place that if ever they did take off, uh, you won't be left uh, in a bad position. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think we've all been uh, played by some uh, blind side at, at uh, some point. And what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self, John? You know, so I'm 41 now. Um, so that would have been about 21 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's been a good run. And I credit a lot of that to, uh, to grinding early on. And, uh, you know, I started out with Accenture. I went to work in India. I got to do some things that Frankly, it would have been easier to, uh, to you know, go spring break with friends here <laughs> in town, kids I'd gone to college with. Um, but it is interesting to look at the path of different people that I, I was friends with back then. And, uh, you know, some had it handed to them and, and never had to start at the bottom and work their way up. You know, I paid my way through school. And there are things that when I look back and I reflect on, it's that grind early on. It's paying your dues. It's starting at the bottom. It's moving up that ladder. It's uh, taking on new experiences, not saying no, uh, saying yes more than no, that I'm thankful that in most cases I did that, not in every case, but yeah. So I would tell myself once again, just, just grind early on and it'll pay off later down the road. Advice for, uh, certainly for anyone uh, from that. So John, if anybody's listening to this and wants to, to reach out to, you know, maybe have a discussion with regards to your networking organization or potentially just with regards to your private equity firm or just get a bit of an insight to you, what's, uh, what's the best way of them getting in touch? All right. So we have Frambridge Capital. I would encourage them to go to the Frambridge Consulting website. That's more all-inclusive and includes uh, Frambridge Capital as well. So that's frambridgeconsulting.com and uh, sign up for our newsletter. Would love to hop on a call as well and just kind of carry the conversation forward from what we discussed today. Uh, Also, please reach out on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect there as well. Perfect. Well, we'll put all that in the the show notes for anybody to be able to click through. Well, Thank you very much for joining us today, John. I really appreciate your uh, your insight into the industry. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. Something a bit different as well with uh, being on the franchise side of things. Uh, so there's a really different insight into, into private equity, but all very much uh, relevant. So as always, thank you very much for our listeners for joining us. And of course, should you ever need support with either private equity professionals or, of course, portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me at Royal Selection. But in the meantime, please do subscribe. But in the meantime, please do subscribe and you'll be notified of our next podcast release. It comes out every two weeks. But till then, keep smashing it. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.